Anyway, we'll give it, we'll give it a few seconds. So, uh, have you ever met someone who can take the simplest of things and make them sound complicated? Like people who describe their jobs in grandiose terms. See if you can understand any of these. So here we go, we've got a transparent wall maintenance engineer. Any ideas for that? Transparent wall maintenance engineer. Window cleaner, there we go. Customer experience enhancement consultant. Some of these are real. Customer experience enhancement consultant. It's a shop assistant. Okay. Okay, a bit of an easier one. Educational centre, refreshments and nutrition supervisor. Dinner person. Dinner person. It's actually a real, apparently it's a real one. Uh, we'll just do two more. Okay, a uh, gastronomical hygiene technician. That's a pot washer. And then a domestic technician. That's a stay-at-home mum or dad, at home, a domestic technician. It's fairly easy, isn't it, to make something sound more complicated. It's less easy to make something complicated sound simple. But our goal with the book of Revelation is to make Revelation not simple, but at least less complicated, less difficult. So, as we go through the book, uh, what I've said as we've gone through it before is there's not going to be any isms as we go through. There are not going to be any long words. There's no requirement to read complicated commentaries or books or anything like that. You don't need to have a degree in history. What we're going to do is read through it and understand it from what we read elsewhere in the Bible. And uh, there's four basic views of how you understand it. We would have had that. I'll, I'll send these around in the week if they don't actually come up. Um, four basic views, and most of what you read or hear or watch comes under these four headings, if you like, of how to read it. You can make it all about the past. You can make it all about something that happened long ago. So some people think that all of this was done and dusted by 70 AD, uh, when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. I met people who believe that. And you can make it all about the future, so nearly everything in Revelation is about a period in history still to come. You can make it about the whole of history, from first, uh, Christ's first coming to his second coming. And you can either do that in order, so it's sort of as you go through the book, it sort of gets further on in history, and you look for specific people and events in history. Or you can do it in principle. So you say that these chapters, they deal with um, timeless truths that apply. So the visions that we see aren't sort of one after the other in history. They're all talking about the same period of time layered on top of each other. And there are literally hundreds of variations and combinations uh, of these things. Uh, and that means that you, you, know, you can have all sorts of different, have all sorts of different opinions in this room. We're going to take a particular line on this, but as we've been reading through the material over the, the weeks and months that we looked at it before, all four views have something to commend them uh, as you go through. That's why Christians, genuine Christians, have disagreed about this over the ages. There are good people who've taken all these positions, and it's okay for you to disagree on this one. But firstly, let's not fall out about it. This is not a central issue of the gospel. As long as we agree Jesus is coming back, however that happens, I think we, we need to agree on that, that central truth. And then secondly, let's keep it a discussion about what the book actually says. 
not about what commentaries or what books have said about Revelation, but about Revelation itself and the rest uh, of Scripture. Now, what we've been saying all the way through, uh, all the way through the last part of our series, is that what we have in the book of Revelation is New Testament truth in Old Testament language. New Testament truth in Old Testament language. It's as though Ezekiel or Zechariah sat down and wrote a gospel. That's what we have in the book of Revelation. So we should expect to see things that we already know. Things that we see elsewhere in the New Testament, but put in a very strange, symbolic way. It's using Old Testament imagery to tell New Testament truth. And as it does that, it's a book we're to remember about Jesus. Right at the beginning of Revelation 1 verse 1, it tells you it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's both from him and about him. It's a book about the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and its implications for the first readers in the first century to help them endure and live for Jesus, but also for us now to help us endure and live for Jesus. And that's what we've been seeing. So our first heading this morning is the story so far. If I can get any headings. That's what I'm trying to do. Oh, I'm not quite sure how that happened, but I'm going with it. Okay, so here are all the diagrams you should have seen. There we go. The story so far. Yes, thank you, Lord. Um, right, you'll see why in a minute. Okay. The book of Revelation starts with a vision of Jesus Christ. We noted at the time that this chapter, the first chapter, is actually helpful for understanding how the book works. The imagery uses, uh, that's used of Jesus here is from the Old Testament. Partly it's the image of Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, and partly the vision of Daniel's vision of a man in Daniel 10. So here in chapter 1 we have a God-man dressed as a priest, tending to the lamps in the heavenly temple. Except we're told that the lamps are actually churches. And we don't have to guess that because Revelation actually tells us. So Revelation 1 verse 20, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Revelation helpfully does this at points. It tells you what it's talking about. Not always in the places you'd want it to, uh, but it does tell you as you go through. What then follows is seven letters to seven churches in what is now Turkey. Lessons for Christians in all sorts of different circumstances. Whatever situation we are in, the seven churches have something to say to us. Seven in Revelation, as we'll see, has to do with completeness, wholeness, perfection. So the seven churches, in a sense, speak to the whole church. And then chapter four sets the scene for the rest of the book. The church and all creation are around the throne, in God's orbit, if you like, serving his purposes. But as we saw with the kids' talk, God's big plan for the world risks being thwarted. He has a sealed scroll with his plans for eternity, for the world on it, but no one is found worthy to open it and enact what's in it. Until John is told of the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's spoken to him that there's a lion, but when he looks around and sees with his eyes, he sees a lamb looking as though it had been slain. It's covered in eyes, all seeing. Seven horns, completely powerful, almighty. A lamb that is almighty God. The Lord Jesus is the one who is worthy to open the scrolls and to enact God's purposes and plans for the world. Notice that idea of same person as we saw in chapter one, 
but different perspective, different angle. We'll see that lots as we go through. The next chapter deals with the effects of breaking the seals. So we see four horsemen, conquest, famine, war, disease, pictured as horsemen sent to unsettle the world. We saw that those things mark our age. We see it every day in the news. Martyred saints are then calling out for justice from heaven and are told to wait a little bit longer. Then the beginning of the end uh, starts as men and women seek to hide from God and call the rocks to fall on them. Before the final seal, though, there's an interlude and we see what is happening to God's people during this time. We see that often in the interludes sort of go back to God's people. In John uh, in chapter 7, we see God sealing his people, keeping them safe. John is told about a specific number of people from specific tribes of Israel. But when he looks round, he sees an innumerable multitude from every nation under heaven. Again, same idea, different angles. The final seal is broken in chapter 8, and the world ends as God's wrath is poured out in response to the prayers of the saints. You think, well, that's over then. But, like Groundhog Day, it goes back to the start again. Everything resets, and we get very similar things happening with, with the seals, but this time they're pictured as seven trumpets. Oh, that's the seals, there's a crowd. Seven trumpets uh, to warn people about what is coming. It's the same suffering, if you like, but pictured in a different way. Creation is undone with the first four trumpets. They affect the land, the sea, the rivers and the sky. A third, a chunk of what they are is being knocked out each time. And then we see the spiritual side of what's going on. As God's judgment is pictured like an army of locusts in the book of Joel, but with demonic features. Satanic, oppressive forces are used to torment the earth. And the chapter ended with the sixth trumpet blasting, sending plagues of smoke and sulphur on the earth. But we're told that despite all the sufferings, despite all the warnings, humankind has not turned to God. Instead, they've doubled down on their idols. Despite the megaphone being used to rouse a sleeping world, the world is sleepwalking to destruction. It seems hopeless, but then in chapter 10, the camera angle changes and we see what else is going on. An interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet. A huge angel with a face like the sun and a rainbow over its head and legs that are pillars of fire holds a scroll and commissions John on behalf of God, uh, God's people, to take the message of this scroll to the ends of the earth. While the trumpets are sounding, God's people are to get on with preaching the gospel. The same message is hammered home in chapter 11, where we see two witnesses, prophets, speaking for God's truth, slaying in the streets for their preaching. A reminder both of the prophetic role of the church in our age and the persecution of the church in our age. And yet they're raised again after three and a half days. Three and a half in various forms comes up a lot. Half of seven, half of the whole second half of history. After the second half of history will be raised. The chapter ends with the seventh trumpet and we're told that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. In other words, after the destruction of the six trumpets, the end has come. There's a song, the temple is opened and then the cycle starts again in chapter 12. In chapter 12, we go right back to the beginning, we get a series of seven signs. We go right back to the birth of Jesus, the beginning of the second half of history. 
He's born of a woman, the offspring of a woman, God's people. And the devil tries to get him. Here we go, that's the woman. The devil tries to get him. But the child is born and he's taken up to heaven. Uh, so the devil can't get him. So the devil tries to get him but can't. It's a very, very abridged version of John's Gospel. But unable to get the, the, the child, the devil goes after the woman and her other children. The devil rages, but the woman is kept safe for three and a half years. We see the devil is thrown down, there we go, and the woman is taken away uh, to safety uh, to live in the wilderness for three and a half years. The devil then tries to destroy her with a stream of lies, but is unable to get her. The earth swallows up the water. But that doesn't stop him from trying. Next we get, uh, in chapter 13, the devil sends two beasts after the woman. Political persecution from a beast who reigns with all the crowns on his power and blasphemous names. And then secondly, he sends one that looks like a lamb, but it's got horns like uh, a, a strength, but it lies like a dragon, it speaks like a dragon. And that's religious persecution. It looks like the real thing, but it's not. And the signs continue in chapter 14. Don't worry, we're nearly there. Chapter 14, three angels uh, give messages, warning of judgment for mankind. They tell you the why of judgment and the how of judgment. And then the chapter finishes with two harvests. A grain harvest uh, from two angels that are sent out. A grain harvest to bring in God's people. And then a great harvest of judgment for the whole earth. And we were left with our awful vision of a river of blood uh, in the final section. A river of blood that was nearly as long as the River Thames and five to six foot deep. And that means, really, that's where we are. This is where we are in the book. Flat by in the middle, at the end of the section on the seven signs. And at the end of the seven visions, we're going to see seven trumpets, and they're sort of introduced to us in this section. And as most of the sections, it's going to end with a song, the temple being opened, or something similar, which it does in all these different sections. So this week, we're just going to focus on the song this morning. Oh, it's just taken us so long to recap. Uh, but we're just going to focus on the songs and the trumpets we'll come to uh, next week. But we've been left from the question here, what happens to all those saints who've been harvested? What about that first harvest where they were taken? What's going to be happening to them, those who have endured? Well, we find out this morning with the seventh sign. Let me read to you verses one and two again. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with heart, the harps of God in their hands. The view switches again from earthly to heavenly. We find out what's going on with God's people in this interlude. Here we see seven angels who are given seven plagues, which we'll see are the seven bowls of God's wrath. This is the last seven in our set of sevens that we go through uh, with the judgments. We won't actually see the action of that till next week. This is just sort of introducing them. And then we see what has happened after the seven trumpets have sounded before the cycle resets. We see a sea of glass that first appeared in chapter 4, the one that stood still before the throne. Only now it's mingled with the fire of judgment. We said there that the waters of chaos had been stilled. It's as though, if you remember the Lord Jesus, when he says, peace be still, 
and the, the water stopped. Well, God has done that. The water is still before him. But here, it's been used in judgment. The waters have been used in judgment on the earth. And it's no longer a clear sea, but a sea red with uh, fire instead. And next to this red sea, we see the saints who have overcome the beast, who endured the persecution of the beast, who did not compromise and give in to the worldly systems of the world, who didn't give in to the fake saviours and the false signs. The beast has been defeated by the plagues and the judgment that God sent, and now the victorious ones stand by the sea and sing. Now that might sound familiar. It sounds a lot like Exodus, doesn't it? It's only a couple of months since we looked at God's people who were singing the Song of Moses by the Red Sea. Well, here they sing the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. Because a new rescue has taken place. A new exodus with a new substitute lamb. A new judgment on the world which brought salvation to his people. A new greater redemption. A victory not just over Pharaoh, but over the beast, over the whole system. And in the midst of all that judgment, there's been salvation. <coughs> Moses sang the song of victory of the Lord. He sang, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. He also sang of the wondrous deeds then that God had done. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonder? And he also spoke of God's people being brought to God's holy abode to dwell there. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Here they're brought into a, a sanctuary made not with human hands. And if you remember in Exodus, we said that sounded very weird because they're still in the middle of the desert. They haven't got anywhere. But here they are now, redeemed, rescued, home. God has done his work. God has rescued them. And their response is to sing. Just like it was when they'd been rescued from the Red Sea. The response of God's people is to sing to the Lord of his glorious majesty. And that's what we get in this chapter. After all is done, after all that judgment is over, and we're gathered safely home, we sing. And here is the song. Verses 3 and 4, not 1 and 2. And we read it to you. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is their victory song by the side of the sea. But it's an interesting choice of a victory song, if you think about it, if you look at the words, because it makes no mention of the battle makes no mention of the enemies, makes no mention of soldiers. Instead, the overwhelming theme is God. His greatness, his worthiness, his wonderful deeds. But isn't that exactly the point? This is the end of history song. This is the one that will be played and sung for all eternity. How unsatisfying would it be if the great chorus of all time was about anything or anyone less 
that God himself. How daft would it be to spend our lifetime testifying to the greatness of God and then spend eternity singing about something else? No, God is the big deal, both now and forever. There's nothing better to sing about. And like the song of Moses, the great song of redemption, is actually about him. Now I should say though, as we talk about the song, I don't think this is suggesting that all we will do for eternity is sing with our lips. In the Garden of Eden at the beginning, Adam and Eve had unhindered fellowship with God. And yet they served him in other ways, didn't they? As they tended the garden. It's more that this is the theme of eternity. Here is the song that we'll be singing for eternity in our hearts. This will be the theme of the rest of history. That doesn't mean that we might not go around singing, although I don't imagine it's going to be exactly like some sort of musical, you know. <laughs> Start singing, I did that around the house already, so maybe it will be. But um, it's not saying that we won't go around singing our hearts out, but I don't think that scripture will lead us to believe that eternity is just one big concert, as though we're all sort of just going to be stood around. And it's not clouds and harps either. Yes, there are harps here, but bear in mind, please, harps in, were the old world equivalent to banjos or guitars. They were handheld things. They weren't the sort of big things you do out of concertos. They were handheld string instruments. Think lively. This is the sort of thing that you'd sing around a campfire. Anyway, back to the passage. This is the song in our hearts, if you like. This is a theme for eternity. So what is it actually about? Well, the first verse of the song is about God, his deeds, and his ways. You see that at the middle of verse 3. Great uh, and amazing are your deeds. The lie is the closest we have to anything in the actual song of Moses in Exodus. But bear in mind, the song of Moses, his deeds in context, were just his judgments on the Egyptians. That's what's just happened. And the same phrase here for deeds is used... Uh, in verse uh, that's used here is also used to describe the uh, seven plagues on the earth by the seven angels. All his deeds are amazing, but here his deeds are probably more to do with his judgments, the judgments that have gone on in the previous chapter. Now that's not to say that we'll see God's judgment and stand by and say, oh great, amazing. That's not the meaning of these words, whether that's true or not. Amazing in English and Greek means something that amazes you. Something that you stop and you marvel at. It stops you in your tracks, it demands your attention. That's what amazing means, it's not, it's not an opinion, it's that it, it just stops you. And great doesn't mean brilliant, it means big, it means mighty. God doesn't do things by half, the things that he's done are huge. So his deeds are huge, they are awe-inspiring. They are mouth-stopping marvels that have no equal. They're jaw-dropping wonders that we can't quite take in. And that is what will cause us to sing and rejoice. That's what we'll sing and rejoice in. We have a God who has acted in history, who has brought about his purposes. We don't have a God who ignores what's going on, or a half-hearted or, or disinterested God. We have the Lord God Almighty, literally ruler of all and it's his deeds as we look back over history it's his deeds that we'll be spending eternity marveling at in awe-inspired wonder all his deeds 
are amazing and great. Secondly, his ways are just and true. The second thing we'll sing about is his ways, his judgments, his ways are fair and right. There's never an overreaction with God. He never takes things too far. There's no miscarriage of justice with God. His judgments are always right. All his ways are right. Now sometimes that can be hard to believe, can't it? Again and again in the Bible we see believers calling out to God for the seeming unfairness of their situation. I do what's right and yet I get a hard time and they go around doing what's wrong and yet they seem to get off and have an easy life. And it can feel like that sometimes, can't it? But here, after the end, when all wrongs have been righted, when everything is made clear, we'll see clearly that all God's ways were right and true. All his ways were right and just. He always did the right thing. He never treated anyone unfairly. And that can help us, can't it, to know that when we're going through tough times. To remember that God is always acting rightly, he's always working for our good. And it's a powerful God that's at work for us. He's king of the nations, king of all the world, he's described here. In fact, the word for nations there is ethnos, all ethnicities, all peoples. There's no partiality or injustice with him. He's the God of all. All his ways are just and true. Now, the first bit was really to do with God and his ways, his character. The second half is to do with how we respond to God and who he is. And that's fear and worship. So thirdly, all will fear and bring glory to his name. The statement is posed as a question, who will not fear you? But the answer is a resounding none. That's what we're supposed to take as none. At the end, no one will not fear God and bring him glory. All will bow. Now that's not to say that all will be saved. But it is saying that in different ways, God will be glorified and feared by all. For some, that fear will be the fear and awe that a child has for their father, marvelling at his great power and authority. I hope that's what my kids do with me. <laughs> for others, that fear will be the terror of a dungeon, will be fear of punishment. For some, that glory that they glorify him with will be the glory as they sing this song, spending eternity honouring God and telling of his saving acts. For other, that glory will be glorious. They show God's righteousness in judgment, in being judged. Two very different paths, two very different endings, but with one overriding goal, the glory and fear of God. For both ways, though, there is a reason given to act that way. God's holiness. The fact that he is holy like no other. There is none like him, not even close. When it says there's not, he's alone is holy, you think, well, hang on, aren't we supposed to be holy as well? But our holiness pales in comparison with his holiness. It's not even worth putting on the same scale. Ours is often lukewarm and changeable. But his is unchanging and white hot. From one perspective, when you think about it that way, like a fire, it's, it's awe-inspiring to look at. 
But from another perspective, it's terrifying and consuming, isn't it? <clears throat> Leaving destruction in its wake. And that leads to the two different outcomes. The holiness of God is at once awesome and awful, terrific and terrifying. It is completely unique in the universe and it polarizes people. But in the end, all will fear. All will bring glory to his name in one way or the other. And then the final thing we see about, I will say about God, is all will come and worship. It may look now like the world is in rebellion against God. We see it in the news every day, don't we? We see it in our lives every day as we sin. But one day it will not be so. One day the rebellion will be over. The war between God and man will finish. All will bow before God. Why? Because, end of verse 4, his righteous acts have been revealed. At the end here, all that God has done will be plain to see. There'll be no denying God's amazing acts. There'll be no exchanging God's glory for something else. It will be clear that everything good and right and pure in the universe was from God. And no one will be able to deny it. It'll be as clear as day. Not Richard Dawkins, not Rousseau, not Baal worshippers, not beast worshippers, not Hindus, Sikhs, Buddhists, Muslims, not communist dictators, not fascist dictators, not princes, kings, queens, emperors, empresses. No one will be able to deny it. No one will be able to deny what God has done. And all will bow in awe or terror before the God of holiness and his holiness. Now what encouragement that would be to the first readers if you think about it. So many of them facing persecution and hardship under oppressive regimes. One day God's righteous acts will be revealed. One day all will be clear and every knee will bow. What an encouragement to us to keep going. One day it will be clear, every knee will bow. They may look big and mighty now, they might seem clever and smug, but not before God, not before the Lord Almighty, the King of the Nations. And that should keep us going, shouldn't it? Should encourage us, that will be the song in history, finally everything made clear. So some things about the future may seem complicated, may seem like you can't get your head around them, but this is simple. At the end of history, God wins. And we shall be there with him for eternity, singing of his glory, singing of his wondrous deeds, singing the song of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus. We'll not be lost in the fires of judgment. Those who heeded the trumpet calls and turned and repented, who refused to worship what the world worships, will be there, gathered by the crystal sea, does that thrill your heart? His job title will be Lord God Almighty. See that here? Our job title will be Knee Bower, Name Glorifier, God Fearer, Worshipper. Okay, there's nothing complicated there, is there? But our job doesn't start then, it starts now. So this morning, bow the knee to King Jesus. Bring glory to his name on earth. Fear God alone and worship him and keep going 
Make it to the crystal sea and join in with the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we'll thank you for the Lord Jesus, the Lamb that was slain. Father, thank you that it's because of him and his amazing deeds that we can join you on that day by that crystal sea and sing of your majesty and might. Father, help us now to begin that song in our lives now. Help us to fear you and bring you glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.